You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello and welcome to another podcast. I'm Peter Hart and with me I have, well, not with me, not Hello. with me, Gary. We're working on Zoom again. We're, 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 uh, we're uh, separated from birth. Lockdown, that's not separated from birth. Uh, um, I think sometimes you should be ill. And down. this is, uh, that, that strange voice is Gary Bain. Isn't he lovely, every, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, and today, our podcast is on life in the trenches in winter 1914. In a bleak midwinter. Hang on a minute. So, so this is just going to be like Gallipoli then. It's going to be dysentery and runny jam <laughs> there'll be things that are runny <laughs> but it'll be mainly snow and slush ah so west, western we're on front the western then, front mainly, yeah. i do apologize we're on a, actually it was pretty cold in gallipoli at that time um, and there were plenty of evacuations at that time hope all of you bought my book available on livinghistorytv.com see how we work that in go what's it called uh uh the Gallipoli evacuation. I knew that. I was just seeing if you knew. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about life in the trenches primarily, aren't we? And, and I thought, well, you know, lots of lots of people think of the trenches as being part of the problem of the uh, the image of the Western Front. You know, the the mud and the blood and the rain and 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 the trenches poetry. and the poetry. Yeah. And uh, I think I'm going to say right at the start here that the purpose of the trenches is. is to actually save lives whilst being able to kill the enemy, oh, of course. And uh, that they weren't new, that, uh, you know, they, they trenches have been used for hundreds of years, in fact, and to my own knowledge, they were used at Sebastopol. So it wasn't a new invention, was it? But but this was trench lines running from the coast all the way down to Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. indeed. And uh, it, it's... Um well, I think we need to get people's heads around the fact that in December, we're looking particularly around December 1914, etc. The trench isn't the thing that you see later on in the war. It doesn't, it isn't a neat construction, is it? It, it, it It's not. No, I mean, they're, they're, in many places, they're just ditches, frankly. And, 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 and they're ditches because they're the nearest cover that someone can take. And then they scratch it out, they develop it, they gradually join together the posts and create a trench system. And as you said, it went from end to end, uh, 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 from, from Switzerland to the sea. Or, as you said, from the sea to Switzerland. Uh, and yeah. it, Well, it's, it's Newport on the, uh, on the coast of Belgium all the way down. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of miles of trenches. And they don't have a lot of sandbags. Uh, and so they're really just a slimy hole in the ground, uh, full of mud and water. They don't have proper drainage. They don't have duck boards. They don't have, they don't really have anything. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, the, the, the parapets are often just earth. They're not really bulletproof. People think uh, a few inches of earth are bulletproof. They're not. Earth will go through a yard, more than a yard. Um, and do, do they have the masses of barbed wire in front of them, Gary? Are they are they secure? No, they they like, they probably have a little in places, 
but uh, certainly nothing uh, like we we come to to imagine. Nowadays. So more like a farmer's fence, which perhaps they'd use to keep cows mm. in the right place and away from uh, footpaths, no, that kind of thing. Right. So so let's let's have a a look at, 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 at this is a, a, a quote you're going to read from Private Douglas Kingsley of the First Honourable Artillery Company. I've now, I don't think any unit with you in it could ever be honourable, but uh, Douglas Kingsley is uh, all company. <laughs> good guy. Right, carry on, Gary. Uh, but sorry, Douglas. They were seldom more than four feet deep, so that it was necessary to walk about with head and shoulders bent. They were nothing but man-made ditches, and we had no materials for rivetting and constantly slipping muddy walls. We started to improve our surroundings by breaking up ration boxes in order to make seats at the back of the trenches. A hole was hacked out with an entrenching tool, and the end of a ration box completed the seat. Unfortunately, there was not sufficient wood available to bank in the ever-slipping, slimy sides and back. In fact, often the seats had to be taken to light fires. However, experience soon taught us that it was safer to be near the front of the trench rather than the back, as all shrapnel and pieces of shell had a certain amount of momentum. Consequently, little alcoves, called funk holes, became fashionable, those being small recesses where one could huddle during a bombardment. Now, there'd been primitive recesses under the lips of the uh, the trenches um, in the Boer War. So so it was well known that you could do that. But of course, if you were doing that, you had to be really careful not to weaken the parapet. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, the, the trench system said were slightly unusual. Often there was a sort of communication trench also running behind the main trench, which just sort of paralleled it. That was quite, that was dropped later on. But in 1914, December, they often went there. And then, of course, some more conventional, uh, on a battalion would have one or two, trenches going communication trenches going back to well not so much the support line as just back away from the front line uh, <clears throat> otherwise you have to go over the top um, now um, we've got a quote from private harold stainton uh, of the first 10th king's liverpool regiment now i like this quote because it gives you an idea uh, i mean douglas kingsley it wasn't exactly comfortable but it was a trench, almost an identifiable trench. This is not an identifiable trench. You're in it, is it, uh, the Gary? Private Harold Stainton. This, an ex-enemy trench, was merely a widened ditch between two fields. The ditch contained about 18 inches of water and slime, numerous corpses and a most appalling stench. Dugouts lined the higher side intermittently, but... As those had been filled with the corpses of bayoneted Germans, they were uninhabitable. By keeping one foot on a dead German and lying diagonally along the clay bank, I was able to keep my body out of the water and at the same time keep my head out of sight of the enemy, who occupied a trench at the edge of the wood 15 or 20 yards away. Near me, half afloat in the water, was a dead Tommy minus one leg. Beside him, a dead Bosch badly swollen by the gases of decomposition and with parchment-like face, was threatening to burst at any moment. I was convinced that only the buttons of his mud-soaked tunic held him together. That's pretty awful. Um... It is, but it, they're making a good point there that, um, you know, heads, the, the natural movement of walking means that that heads could be seen above the parapet. You've been in real trouble, Pete, being as tall as you are. Yes, indeed. Thank you. <laughs> you wouldn't have shot me, though. Now, uh, the, when you describe things like that, that swollen dead Bosch, I mean, I think the freezing cold, just as what that's one small advantage, is it might have kept the stench down. Because um, there's, there's an awful stench about that. It's not just the dead bodies, is it? There's more to it than that. Uh, what else could it be that making them... Well, you've got, I mean, food refuse, human excrement. I, it, there, there was, there was a, a real effort to keep that uh, uh, type of thing away from the frontline trenches, in the trains. But, but frankly, it, it, you know, uh, it, it could move. Frankly, when uh, artillery was involved, and and dead animals. You know, it's not just dead human beings; animals rotting in the fields all around them. So it's a shame we haven't got Fred here to provide a sort of living example of the stench that can emanate from animals. 
No. And and at this point in time, this this is very much like the the view of the trenches. It's raining. It's pouring down December in nineteen fourteen. Um, there's no spare manpower available to do, to achieve any sort of drainage. It's bloody awful. Yes, and I'm going to read a quote now. And this is from Lord Edward Glycan. He was commanding Fifteenth Brigade. Uh, well, he sounds German. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of those fine old English names, like Windsor. What's that? <laughs> anyway, mm. uh, Glycan says that. Oh, that mud! We have heard lots about Flanders mud, but the reality transcends imagination, especially in winter. Greasy, slippery, holding clay over your toes in most places, over your ankles in all the rest, where it's not over your knees. It is the most horrible going I know anywhere. The state of the trenches is indescribable. Some were, frankly, so full of water that they had to be abandoned and a breastwork erected behind. And this is quite common in certain areas, especially um, uh, towards uh, the Lease Valley, the the Lease, L-Y-S. There's breastwork. Yeah, there's breastwork trenches everywhere. Uh, that, that, that's a... Yeah, I mentioned Newport earlier. That, you know, the Belgians were defending on the line of the canal. So it, it's awful. And I think it's just about to get worse well, what as well. could make it worse? What could make water worse? Well, the temperature starts to drop, I understand. And, and so it drops below freezing. That's going to be pretty difficult i i, I can't even we're all spoilt with our central heating and all the rest of it but the cold absolutely penetrates their very bones that they, they, they all they can feel all they can think about is is just a dull endless discomfort coming that there doesn't seem to be any chance of it ever going away they can't go for a quick i mean can you imagine in that trench it was you described can you imagine going for a walk well, you can't. You'd be sniped. You've just got to stand about in freezing cold water, often over your boots, over your ankles. Oh, and then the snow, Gary. Lovely, lovely snow. And everybody loves a little snowstorm, don't you? Not if you're in the trenches. And this is Lieutenant Sir Edward Hulse of the Second Scots Guards. What does he think of it? It's been snowing hard after two nights sharp frost. And it is lying about two inches deep. Is this your deep, posh voice? Except, except in the foot of the trenches, where by the continual passage of men up and down, it has become a freezing cold slush of mud and chills one's boots right through. We have not changed our boots or socks even, and far and away the worst part is the cold in one's feet at night, which makes sleep impossible for more than half an hour or so at a time. That's that's pretty awful. Um, I can imagine a night, Gary, just 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 how cut you know you're freezing cold. You can't get to sleep. It, it just no hope. It was awful, and uh, there's a new ailment starts to 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 appear, and it, it's it's what they call trench foot. And this is Lieutenant Arthur Ackland of the First Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry, and he says this: the bottom of the trenches became deep in icy mud. In this they stood up to their knees day and night. Perhaps I should have done my Cornish accent. Mo, it always turns no. into pirate, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> up to their knees, day and night. For we could not spare a man from the trenches. And soon we began to experience what we called frostbitten feet. And we call trench feet. But never mind, he called it frostbitten feet. No one knows quite what it is, but I think myself it comes from the continual pressure of the mud and the lack of ventilation to the feet. Anyway, it's a dreadful thing, and the men suffered agonies from it. Now... Trench feet, crossbite, trench feet, uh, they're, they're, they're awful. And it, it's, it's caused by the continually being in water and the freezing cold. And it, it, some of them just, you touch them and they hurt. Uh, and some of them, they go the other way. You get a complete loss of all feeling. The, the feet would swell. They become red. They get blisters. And then the, what would you think it means if your toes go black? Is that a good sign? Are they getting better, Gary? No, I think you're, you're likely looking at uh, gangrene by that oh, point. Oh dear, that doesn't sound good. Uh, you can lose your your feet, you, your your toes. You can lose your feet. Yeah, you can be crippled from it. Yeah. Now, uh, how do you avoid it? Well, uh, well, let, tell me how you avoid trench feet, Gary. How would you avoid it? Oh well, clearly you keep your feet out oh, of the well. water, <laughs> so you just lie on your back and keep your feet pointing out the top of the trench. <laughs> That'll That'd do. It. That's a one great idea. Uh, well, if you can't for some reason, perhaps the Germans. Do that. What else could you do? 
Well, prevention's better than cure, frankly. So, and and to this day, looking after your feet in the armed forces is very important. They, they, you know, uh, you you've got to try to to keep them dry. That's not always possible. <laughs> not in the trenches, but no. no. So, um, they they were they. They rubbed them dry and they cleaned and put dry socks on wherever they could. Where did they get the dry socks from? Well, strangely enough, a lot of the socks were being sent from people at home, sometimes complete strangers. (laughs) I think we come on to that a bit later. Now, um, so so that's it. Now, what they have to do, a lot of it is stuff that can't be done immediately, isn't it? So the the real answer, if you want to keep your feet dry, you're going to have to have a drainage system. You've got to be above the water. So that means duckboards. Now, duckboards are just... uh, Plank, plank systems basically that raise you above the water. Now, the other thing is uh, liberal and regular application of whale oil to the feet. Well, they hadn't exactly thought of that. I mean, why, why would you think, I know what I'll do, I'll kill a whale, I'll get a load of oil out of it, and I'll rub it on my feet. Now, would you think of that in the trench in, in, in Flanders? No, I'd be marching up and down with a Save the Whale placard. Plus, I don't think there's many whales lying around in Flanders, is there? no. <laughs> you can have a bit of trouble. So that's something that's, it's, you know, it's all right. Now, lots of people, you're right, you're right. Lots of people at home, they're well-intentioned. They're lovely people, and they send things out to the men. Uh, now, how do the men react? Well, the men react like British soldiers always do. <laughs> if you try and be nice to a British soldier, they'll laugh at you. And this is Cecil, Captain Cecil Brownlow. I love this quote of the 40th Brigade Royal Field Artillery. What, what are you going to say? Well, firstly, I'm going to make sure I've got the right glasses on here. Oh. Many of them were of extraordinary shapes and sizes. Attached to many articles were little cards bearing messages of goodwill. One from a maiden lady said, I'm a little doubtful as to the size of a man's sock, but I hope these will be large enough and will keep you warm. These happened to be so large that they were used as sleeping helmets and warmed not only our heads, but also our hearts. I just love this little lonely. Oh, I don't know how big a man's socks are. I'll just make it this size. Oh, dear. What a disappointment for a young woman. <laughs> anyway, uh, right. Now, so it's, it's all but... It's very depressing. I want this is a backdrop to everything else we're talking about. Uh, it's freezing cold. It's, it's water that's up, ice or nearly ice. It's it's windy. It's horrible. It's bloody useful. Um, now uh, somehow they have to get the food forward for the men to eat, and this is for thousands and thousands of men. It's a major undertaking. So they'd have to send ration parties back every single night. Now. You couldn't do it today, could you? What? Why not? Why couldn't you do it during the day? Them Germans. Mm. I don't know. I've, I'm, sometimes I wonder if the Germans are really our friends. Well, then, obviously they're our friends now. But, but they just kept shooting us. I don't know why they do that. Anyway, this well, at is... Night, it must have been really difficult. Yeah, the, because uh, do you think they had torches? <laughs> <laughs> No. Well, this is Private Edward Rowe of the 1st East Lancashire Regiment, and, and you're going to read his quote describing what it's like, aren't you, Gary? It is an agony of endurance trying to get rations up to the firing line. The nights are dark and wet. The turnip field is pitted with shell craters which are full of water. The dikes on each side of the road to headquarters are full of water. The regimental transport dumps the rations on the road opposite headquarters in an indiscriminate pile. The party gets loaded up and struggles towards the firing line. Will the Germans open up with machine guns before we get there? Or will we be lucky enough to get back to the trenches without coming under machine gun fire? Those are our thoughts as we struggle along with our loads. Ping, 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 swish! Down go the boxes, sandbags and rolls of cheese. We dive into the dikes on either side of the road. We are up to our necks in water, but we're alive. He fires down the road, traverses left and right, then stops. Come on, lads, let's get a move on before he starts again. And remember, you've just got soaked in freezing cold water 
What? How are you going to get dry? When are you going to get dry? Because next night it's got to be done again. This isn't just once. You have to do it every soddy night. A ration party has to go back. Um, the, the routine of the trenches is always pretty unrelenting. Um, for the officers, perhaps a little easier, but they've got the responsibility of making sure everybody else is doing their job or, or at least making sure. I'll be absolutely honest with you, making sure the NCO is making sure everybody's doing their job. Um, but sometimes, sometimes people just got so tired, so exhausted, and they took, they just drifted to a sort of, oh, I don't know, a, a stupor, a stupor, a bit like, oh, I don't know. Anyway, you're going to be Lieutenant Sir Edward Hulse again, Second Scots Guards. I found one whole platoon in the most hectic state ever seen. Not a sentry on the alert. The NCO on duty sitting down instead of patrolling his lines, and a hundred other things. Any enterprising twenty or thirty Huns could have simply walked right in. Unless one is at it day and night, nothing is done. There are individuals, scouts, etc., volunteers and picked men, who are priceless and worth a whole platoon in themselves. But by Jove, one has to work at the rest. The unfortunate part was having every single one of our serving NCOs knocked out when the battalion took the knock originally. Half of them don't seem to understand English or any other language for that matter. By taking the knock, he means the casualties at Mons and Le Cateau and the rest of it. Well, and First Eeps, of course. Now, in most battalions, your sentry go was two hours. Uh, one man per section on duty during daylight and one man in three throughout the night. So if you think about it, that during the night you get four hours sleep out of six or three, you know. Um, and that assumes that the Germans, Germans didn't do anything. Uh, now this is Private Harold Stainton again, first 10th Kings Liverpool, right? Oh, that was an appropriate use of the Germans. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it, it's quite scary being on central duty, isn't it? Come on, let's have your best Scouse accent, Gary. In the first gleam of half light before dawn, I think I might read this normally. In the first gleam of half light before dawn, when the trees were emerging from silhouette into things with shape and form, I was peeping over my sights through the base of the hedge when a large form silently rose and obscured my sight of the trees. It could only have been an enemy, and instinctively I took a quick, rough bead on the massive target and squeezed the trigger. Whatever it was sank to the ground and out of my vision. Now I was tense with suppressed excitement. I felt sure that I had disposed of a murderous sniper and in a baited whisper told my neighbour so. But where was the evidence? I had to wait impatiently for dawn to break before finding it. The grey uniformed body of a big and bulky German lying silent and still three or four yards away. That's a close escape. Normally these stories, it's a, it's a, a sheep or a cow. <laughs> but in yeah. that case, it really was a German. Now, sometimes, almost not, you can imagine how tense, how tense he was, Harold Stain, how tense people got. And almost anything could sort of trigger trigger a sort of mass outbreak of well hysteria uh, and shooting and banging away and this is a have you heard of this person second lieutenant bruce bernsfeller of the yep. first warrior why have you heard of him going he's the guy who does the, the little cartoons for his son isn't he that became so popular and some of which are funny <laughs> and uncollectible and very collectible i haven't got any only got the collected things. Anyway, uh, the, uh, the, 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 they were gathered together, and a lot of you people will have bought the, the little magazines that were put out at the time, and uh, that's great. Anyway, this is him uh, from his time in the line. He said this, Perhaps an inquisitive boss somewhere a mile or two on the left had thought he saw someone approaching his barbed wire. A few shots are exchanged. A shout or two, followed by more shots. Panic! More shots! Panic! Spreading! Then suddenly the whole line of trenches on the front of a couple of mines succumbs to that well-known malady. Wind up. The firing becomes faster and faster, then suddenly swells into a roar. Everyone's standing to the parapet, and away on the left, a tornado crackling sound can be heard, getting louder and louder. In a few seconds, it's swept on down the line, and now a deafening rattle of rifle fire is going on immediately in front. Bullets are flicking the tops of the sandbags and the parapets in hundreds, whilst white streaks are shooting up with a swish into the sky and burst into bright, radiating blobs of light. Light, the star shell at its best. Presently there comes a deep 
boom, from somewhere in the distance behind, and a large shell sails over our heads and explodes somewhere amongst the bosh. Another, and another, and then all becomes quiet again. The rifle fire diminishes and soon ceases. Total result of one of these firework displays, several thousand rounds of ammunition squibbed away, hundreds of star shells wasted, and no casualties. Hopefully no casualties. That's quite a, I think that's a great description. You get the real feel of it from Birds of the Great Bloke. Now, um, the four hours when you're off sentry duty, do you think the army leave you to sort of put your feet up and have a nice rest? Uh, or do you think they find something for you to do? No, and, and sometimes I think uh, it, it could be more dangerous or physically exhausting than, than being in the line. Yeah, so who are you going to be now? You're going to be... I'm going to be Private Douglas Kingsley of the First Honourable Artillery Company again. And he says, In true army fashion, it was more than likely that a sergeant would call for volunteers, usually done by saying, I want six volunteers, you and you and you. Possibly to take out barbed wire entanglements, repair some part of the trench which had caved in under shell fire, or take part in a burial party. In fact, so numerous were the daily toils necessary for the maintaining of human life under such conditions that it would be almost impossible to enumerate them. There's a lot to do, isn't there? A lot of tasks, just all, just digging drainage, trying to dig drainage would be enough. Now, they've also got to send out patrols and raided parties because if you don't know who you're facing you don't if you don't notice when the germans change unit they could be planning an attack if you don't take prisoners if you don't monitor what they're doing in their trenches they'll come and kill you and this is uh you're going to be lieutenant george rupel of the first east surrey regiment what does george say gary we often went out patrolling and i usually took the same men with me always volunteers at this time and corporal parks always came do you think corporal parks Arrange for those same volunteers. <laughs> Probably. We climbed out of our trenches, got through the wire and across the stream, and then started to crawl. As a rule, we moved up one of the hedges to avoid being seen in the open field when a very light went up. That's a good point. It's your point about it being just ditches and not sophisticated trenches at this time. They're, they're just out into the hedges. This is countryside, yeah. We could not do this every night as the enemy might have been waiting for us in the hedge. So we varied this with a crawl across the open field. It was quite exciting work. Every noise, even if it was made by one of our own men, made us halt and we used to lie flat for ages. Now, wherever the, this is the part of that, we, 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 we want to look now a bit about snipers, because wherever you are in the trenches, you're, you're at risk, aren't you? And you made that very good point about if you're over, what, well, five foot seven, eight, which was quite tall then, uh, you were in danger. If you were over six foot, the chances of you getting a bullet through the top part of your skull are high. Um, this is uh, Second Lieutenant w William Smalley. Uh, of the first Sherwood Foresters, fine body of men. And he says this, One gets bullets coming in from all sides. They apparently climb trees or live in the cellars of destroyed houses and simply pop away all through the night, having first laid the rifle by day. He means they lay them on a target, fix it, so it, it's, say, pointing at a gap in the trenches or a low bit. In the German trenches, it also, it seemed as though they have tripods or fixed rests for their rifles and have them sighted all the time on a loophole or a tee just at the back of the trench or any conspicuous mark along our front. One gets bullet after bullet coming through the same loophole, loophole during the night and always hitting the same spot in the rear. Sorry to say, we've lost two officers killed and one ruined, wounded so far. I don't know where the ruin came from. Uh, now, uh, this this was in a letter home. He wrote the letter home, and uh, it was published in the Nottingham Daily Express on the 8th of December. And our friend Jim Grundy has probably read and knows of this chap. In fact, I'm sure he does. Uh, the very next day after it was published, on the 9th of December, William Smalley was, uh, was killed. Do you know how he was killed, Gary? He was shot by a sniper. Yeah. It's uh, whilst crossing an exposed part. You can know about a danger, but you can't make yourself safe. You can only try your best. Um, now, uh, in view of that, it's 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 also strange to uh, to think that the British Army is the British Army, isn't it? So, it, <laughs> what does it do? How how do some people react to this danger? How does well, they're, 
they they sort of have a, a, a risky amusement about it and take risks. And this is a quote from Private Douglas Kingsley again of the First Honourable Artillery Company. And he says, It is peculiar how under strain and stress a sharpening of humour and wit seems to run through most Englishmen. A constant source of amusement was the placing of an old hat on a stick, walking with it along it, the trench, or bombing it up and down to tempt a hun to take odd pots at it knowing perfectly well that one was quite safe. This was sometimes done purposely so that somebody a few hundred yards further up would be able to spot an enemy sniper being tempted to expose his position by firing at the moving target. And you can imagine somebody marching up and down with his hat on a stick. They didn't do much of this later on because uh, the Germans used to just lob a, a Minenworth shell across, which... Uh... <laughs> Very funny. Cop hold of this, pal. <laughs> anyway, uh, sniping is a dangerous business and a cold-blooded business. Uh, you, you, sometimes uh, snipers are unpopular. You, uh, you remember the most famous Australian sniper, uh, Willie Singh in Gallip- Billy Singh in Gallipoli, was ex- was quite unpopular. Uh, they're seen as cold-blooded, and they need a lot of patience, and they have to be cold-blooded. And this is uh, Sergeant Frederick Brown of the First Second Monmouthshire Regiment. One morning, Lieutenant Patton, platoon officer, sent for me. A German sniper was reported shooting from a small square window in a barn some 300 yards away. He could be seen easily through the officer's field glasses, but indistinctly with the naked eye. I took a careful sight on the bottom centre of the window, fired, and Lieutenant Patton, watching through his glasses, exclaimed, Good shot, Sergeant! He saw him throw up his arms and fall backwards. I was not yet hard-baked enough to remain unmoved by this incident. Now, it's interesting. He, he mentions 300 yards there. That's about the limit that you would have a, a sniper set up to shoot a moving target. And, and a lot of people don't actually know that snipers would want to get closer if at all possible, and often would be in front of the trenches when taking the shot. Well, they're not going to be aiming at a whole body. They're aiming at just, say, the top two inches of a head, or they're aiming at a loophole. So the closer they can get, the better. Um, now, some people um, wouldn't take shots. Uh, the ordinary soldier often didn't have this attitude. And um, if a German, you know, if there's thousands are running towards you, they'll shoot them down as happily as, as Larry. Uh, but if it's just one person, they often seem to have almost scruples about it. Well, it's almost personal, isn't it, when it's one person? And this is Brigadier General Lord Edward Glycan of the Headquarters 15th Brigade. And I like this quote. Um, I might have to. No, I won't do a posh voice. It's, when going around the trenches, I asked a man how, whether he'd heard any shots of the German, whether he had had any shots of the Germans. He responded, there was an elderly gentleman with a bald head and a long beard, who often showed himself (laughs) over the parapet. Well, why didn't you shoot him? Shoot him, said the man. Why, Lord bless you, sir. He's never done me no harm. (laughs) A case of live and let live, which is certainly not to be encouraged. But cold-blooded murder is never popular with our men. And that's the point of it. It is seen as murder to, a, to, to some men. They just don't want to do it. They, they give a chap a fair chance, That all that kind of attitude. Now, um, there is one thing that, uh, that, that, that is the real enemy in the trenches. It's, it's the big cause of the biggest load of casualties, and it's not machine guns. If you're in a trench and not attacking, machine guns are not your problem. What's your problem, Gary? Well, it's, it's largely German shells. Artillery shells, that's it. Or, yeah. or mortar, you're quite right. Uh, they could just come down anywhere, couldn't they? Yeah, and, and it's random. It's completely random. It, it can take you out or your mate out or round the corner. And this is Major General... Major... Not Major General. Major Gerald Burgoyne, Second Royal Irish Rifles. Lovely bunch of lads, lovely boys. And he says this... Their shells were bursting now on the near edge of my trenches, then 10 to 15 yards to my immediate front. And at each tearing scream, we all crouched close to the inner wall of the trench. Nearer and nearer, we heard the shell. After a time, it was possible to tell whether it was coming to right or left of your position, but equally possible to say with certainty, there's one for us. And the few seconds terrible wait. Would it burst in front or behind or would it be the one? 
somehow curiosity to see what happened prevented one being afraid. Not sure that would have worked with us, Gary. And anyhow, it was no use feeling afraid. We had to stick there. For the whole of that hour, the din was awful, awe-inspiring. The whole of creation was trembling. And th- this is the point. And there's also no. It doesn't matter how skillful a soldier you are. You are how l- how how uh, whether you've got a second sense as to where shells are going. Whether whether you what, however cautious you could be, there's not much you could do, is there? Because what's the German gunner doing? He doesn't know where you are, does he? He's just setting a sight on a bloody gun. He's got no idea about you. He's just firing a shell over there. And if you're under it, then it doesn't matter what. It's going to kill you. And it wasn't often just a single shell, was it? it it's uh, uh, a barrage of shells. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the trench mortars, the, 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 the Minenwerfer, as they were called, uh, sending up their shells. And they go right up high and come back down. Well, mortars, sorry. Um, now, the British, do we have that kind of... Uh, the, can we hit back with mortars and things? Well, bearing in mind, you know, it's, it's December 1914... No, we've got nothing like that at all. We try. We have some sort of Heath Robertson uh, 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 mortars that we make ourselves. The Royal Engineers make, and we also have improvised hand grenades. Now, what could go wrong with an improvised hand grenade? That's what I want to know. Uh, the, the 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 earliest sort was often the jam tin bomb. Uh, what do you imagine a jam tin bomb was made from, Gary? Jam. No, I think you've concentrated on the one part, wrong part of the word. Let's okay. It was the tin we've talked, round yeah, the jam talked, We have talked about the improvised uh, bombs that were made uh, when we talked about Gallipoli, for example. It was it was the same in other in other fronts, but they are incredibly unpredictable. And of course, uh, the men are not trained in how to use them, which is another aspect. Were they were they squaddy proof? No. Were they, no, even, were they even officer-proof? No, this is a quote from Lieutenant James Hindson of the 1st Loyal North Lancashire Regiment. And he says, The type of bomb now produced for our edification is made from an ordinary plum and apple jam tin with an attached fuse which has to be lit by a match before throwing. No one, except a few engineers, knows anything whatever about the bomb and its habits. One of the first produced was put by some irresponsible idiot on the heating stove in the officer's mess, and then forgotten. It was not spotted for some time, not indeed until it was nearly red hot, and the individual in question was ordered to remove it and drop it in a bucket of water. During this process, most of us made ourselves extremely scarce. <laughs> so would I. I love this idea of them all sat in the officer's mess, which would be just some sort of dugout or, or farm building, and this is this grenade on the stove getting otter and otter. <laughs> I wonder if it was done deliberately by some Gary-like figure. Anyway, so we're just not ready. The British are not ready for trench warfare. They don't have the necessary equipment. And it's not just the mortars, the hand grenades. They haven't even got waders, normal waders, spot on their leggies. They haven't got the right digging tools. Uh, your, your entrenching tool, it's about as much use as a sausage. You know, it, 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 it... You can cook a sausage. Yes, all right. It's much, much less use than a sausage. Um, so now, uh, tra- casualties. There's a steady trickle uh, of casualties for the British in the trenches. Even when it's quiet, there are casualties from sniping. But during a, an attack, it would swell up. And there are attacks in, in December. We're not going to deal with them. But we launched some of our earliest trench-to-trench attacks. Uh, and and uh, let, we want to now talk a bit about the, the, the medical side of it. Because what how do, how do they deal? What's the chain of events? Well, the, uh, How do they deal with it? Well, the stretcher bearers for each r- battalion... They would collect the, uh, the the wounded from the battlefield and take them back to advanced dressing posts. Uh, they're normally in some building uh, close by, some old farm building. Remember, we're 1914. There are still buildings near the battlefield. And uh, each one of these uh, wounded, of course, they've got their own story. But uh, what happens to them when they get back? Uh, what what they they they're going back and they 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 meet the doctor who does triage tests, which is basically uh, right you. Your head's falling off. No treatment. You, 
you're badly wounded, we best treat you. And you, you're not wounded, you've got a light wound, we're not treating you. So it's working out who it's worth treating. You've got too many to treat, so the, the people who are not badly wounded are left, and the people who are going to die are left. Uh, now, this is Captain uh, Robert Dolby of the Second Kings and Scottish Borderers. They, they were, uh, they were, they were a fine body of men. I, I don't want to say that, but I've got to. Fine body of men. Derek from Hike will kill me. He said this: One felt that one was very glad to be uh, so close up and to be so helpful, and yet one felt so strangely helpless. There was so much to be done. So many for whom surgery could do so little. The abdominal cases that died so soon. The brain cases that took so long to die. And of all the dreadful wounds in war, the lacerating brain wound is the most harrowing. Restless, noisy, delirious, the unhappy victims struggle with the men who would restrain them, babbling of private matters, of domestic things, crying for water and yet spitting it out when brought. And the wounds come in every shape and form. There's no part of the human body the, the shell won't blast. Uh, no, It just... Everything, your whole body, it's not going to miss your eyes just because you don't, you, it, it, or your, your willy or any other part of you. It's just going to smash home. And this is Lieutenant Arthur Martin, 15th Field Ambulance, REMC. The first case attended to was that of a young soldier of the Norfolks who had been struck by a shell in the abdomen. His intestines were lying outside the body and loops were inside the upper part of his trousers. Under chloroform, we did what we could. He died painlessly four hours afterwards. There were many bad shell wounds of the head, one necessitating a tree panning operation. One poor fellow had his tongue half blown off. The loose bit was stitched on. The compound fractures were numerous and of a very bad type, associated with much shattering of the bone. Terrible, terrible. A trepanin is where they drill a hole in your head through your skull yeah. to release the pressure. It's it's awful. Uh, so all these new things. Now there's 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 something else. This is 1914. That they, they they were becoming aware of a new threat in the soil of Flanders. What was that, uh, Lieutenant uh, Martin? When a man got wounded, some dirt was bound to get into the wound. But a man's hands and clothes were usually caked with mud. If a man is struck on the face or limbs, he will at once put his hands on the injured part. It's a movement which is almost involuntary. The hands of the men in the trenches were infected with the uh, bacilli of this gas gangrene. And when these infected fingers touched a recent wound, the wound itself became infected with these highly dangerous organisms. Pieces of khaki cloth caked in mud were often driven into the wounds and the bullets and shrapnel. And on this, on this cloth, there were, of course, millions of the deadly little beasts. If the case reached us soon after the onset of gangrene, a cure could almost certainly be promised. If the case arrived late, when the limbs were dead, amputation was the only conservative treatment that one could adopt. Many of the cases sent to me were beyond any hope of recovery and soon died. All the cases of gas gangrene had a very penetrating putrefactive smell which is quite characteristic now that wasn't That's the only that, that, that it's awful and they did stink it was awful uh, there was something else that was lying in the were lurking lurking in the mud what was that you're going to be um, arthur martin again another complication of our wounds at this time was tetanus or the so-called lockjaw when tetanus manifests itself when the convulsions and muscular spasms come on it's a terribly a terrible malady to treat and most of the cases die. And I remember always dodging. You know when they, you have an accident? Yeah, and tetanus you, injection. And you get a tetanus. I always, they used to say, have you had a tetanus injection recently? And I always used to say, yes, <laughs> to avoid getting one. And when you hear descriptions like that, you realise just how stupid you can be. Well, I can be. Now, the, the, from the uh, forward post, they'll be taken back to field, am, field ambulance for, and then back to... Uh, clearing station all this now sister martha aitken was uh, one of the dedicated female nurses uh, dealing with all these seriously wounded men and she was at wimaru hospital it was a former hotel that had been converted into a hospital and she said this and no silly voices because this is awful uh, the wounds are fearful in some cases there are six bad head cases among them the men all have huge gashes and one could see the brain pulsating when the dressing is going on 
Poor men, and they make such good patients, and hardly utter a groan when I'm sure they must suffer agonies. One poor man was dreadfully injured. He had a compound fracture of both femurs, and the left humerus as well, as well as a hole in his head. <laughs> oh dear, fortunately, he soon got quite unconscious and died two days later. These men who are able to be moved are soon sent uh, across the channel, and the others are kept here and nursed until their time comes. It means either they either die or they, their time comes to go across the channel. How bravely they bear all their pain and even lie in bed and make jokes about what they have come through. One and all, they are glad to get into bed and feel that they can sleep and fear no night attack. A clean shirt and bed are all they ask. Um, but some of the men are suffering mental traumas. This is the shell shock of legend and reality. Shell shock isn't a disease, it's a collation of, of, of symptoms. Uh, and uh, Lieutenant Arthur Martin, you're going to be him again. He's got a fairly sympathetic, it's a reasonably sympathetic approach to it, hasn't it? I attended one young officer and three men who had been buried in the earth when their trench was blown up. The officer and one man were unconscious, and when the man recovered consciousness, he was nervy and excitable. He had a startled, terrified expression, and when in bed, he would peer round in a wild, anxious way, and then suddenly pull the blankets well over his head and curl up underneath, as if anxious to shut out his surroundings, or what he thought were his surroundings. He seemed really to be living through some terrifying experiences of the past few days' antecedent and up to the time when his trench was blown up and he was engulfed in the mud and debris. The officer recovered consciousness more slowly and spoke in a curious staccato speech. His nerves were completely gone and he had fine tremors of the lips and tongue and fingers. He told me that his memory had gone, that he had only a hazy recollection of recent things which seemed far away and dim. And there's so many of these symptoms of shell shock. Uh, uh, nervous twitches, uncontrollable shouting, a bit like Tourette, shouting and screaming, night terrors, uh, people lost their hearing and their eyesight through, 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 through post-traumatic stress. Uh, we like to think we don't call it a disorder, do we, Gary? Because it's almost a natural response to these terrible things they've been through. Uh, it, it, it is a real thing. Um, and, uh, uh, it's, uh, to be honest, I'm glad to turn away from it. Let's turn away from it and look at another aspect of life in the trenches. And that aspect of life in trenches is being out of the trenches. Um, there's a complex system in the British Army of you, you're in the front line for two or three days, you come back into support line if you have one, and then get periods out of the line, all the rest of it. When they came out of the line, they usually billeted in farms, uh, farm outbuildings, uh Houses in villages, uh, it, they, they're, they're very welcome to get back to these things. But then there's another aspect of life in the trenches and life outside. Uh, and it starts, people notice it more when they're out of the freezing cold. Uh, uh, what's that, Gary? Uh, it's, uh, it's lice, isn't it? It is, yeah. And Private Harold Stainton, our old friend from the 1st 10th King's Liverpool Regiment, says... Who the previous inhabitants were, I do not know, but they left us a heritage which we could gladly have avoided. They must have been alive with body lice. They seized upon us as virgin soil and avidly planted their vile eggs in our protesting flesh. The kilt pleased them enormously. It would. For the thickness of the cloth and the numbers of the folds in the neighbourhood of the waste provided both funk holes and heat. What more could the pioneering spirit of the enterprising louse desire? We stretched, we scratched and we swore, and we swore and we scratched. That is a lovely quote, isn't it? A lovely quote. Now, the army organised uh, bath facilities to try and get rid of these lice and also just get the men clean. Otherwise, uh, there's lots of things in Pertigo. There's lots of these, uh, uh, there's lots of these things, uh, scabies that people get. Um, and, and they often they were in, well, the ones that are most famous, the ones in ex-breweries, old breweries, the, the vats acted as huge baths. And this is uh, Private Arthur Cooker, the first Somerset Light Infantry, uh, another lovely regiment. Their museum, the, the, the museum's fantastic down there in uh, Somerset land, as we call it. Private Arthur Cook. On arrival at the brewery, we undressed in a room, taking off everything except shirt and boots. Our khaki coat, trousers and cap, less the chin strap, were tied in a bundle and placed in a fumigator, and vest, pants and socks were carted off, lice and all, for boiling. 
We then had to go out into the open along the towpath for about 50 yards in full view of the ladies on the bank. Oh, look at the soldiers. They've got no cars on. <laughs> we had only a shirt on and it was windy and bitterly cold. Oh, don't want it cold. So we did not loiter for their benefit. The high wind did not help our modesty. The bathtubs were large beer vats and 10 men were allotted to each vat. We were soon in like a lot of excited kids. Every now and then we had a peep over the side to see if our boots were okay, as we were told that they were likely to be pinched. We were now a very lousy crowd for the lack of washing had bred lice by the thousand and the surface of our bath water was soon a thick scum of these vermin. We scratched each other's backs to ease the itching. Towels and soap were ready and when we were dry we got a clean shirt. Then we had to go back along the canal bank where the girls were still waiting. It must have been very cold for them, but I suppose they thought it was worthwhile. Ah, we're mad. <laughs> yes, wonderful, wonderful quote. Um, now, the, the men are often on working parties when they're out, and they weren't that keen on them. And this is a, just a fantastic quote from uh, Major Gerald, Bur Gerald Burgoyne of the Second Royal Irish Rifles. Now, Gerald Burgoyne comes across as an absolute... First-rate bastard. There's no two points in in, in in disguising the fact he is a complete bastard. But this quote is just fantastic. It goes like this. I'll read it to you. No silly voice. The man doesn't deserve a silly voice. He's silly enough. This morning, I saw a fatigue party marching off. The men all over the place. No discipline. And the corporal in charge, useless. You were a useless corporal, were you? I, I called out to them, but one man took no notice. So I ran out and gave him two under the jaw. They pulled themselves together then and marched off something more like soldiers. On parade this afternoon, I saw another man scrimshanking. I'd seen the company parading, but was just getting a, a drop of a tea hotted. <laughs> I lifted him a couple of the best and kicked him till he ran. And then I spoke a few well-chosen words to the men. Told them that if they did not play the game to me, I'd lead them a dog's life. And if they played up well, I'd look after them well. I'm sure my little show of firmness had its effect. All men, like an officer who compels obedience, <laughs> it's no use punishing a man on active service as one does in peacetime. The only thing is to hit him at once and hard, and the men will see that their officer takes a real personal <laughs> interest in them. Now, people say, how can you laugh when there's death and destruction? But when you've got an officer like Major Gerald Burgoy, how would, did your officers used to take a real and personal interest in you? Because I believe there was one occasion one night outside the officer's mess where a young officer did take a personal interest in you and kicked the yeah, hell out of you. in a fairly similar way, actually. <laughs> he kicked hell out of you, didn't he? He did, yeah. So, did you afterwards... Respect him and th th thank you for the personal interest. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I felt he was taking me very personally. <laughs> yes. Right. Now, the men would be out of their bigot, estaminets, small cafes, uh, just run by local Belgians and French. Um, um, they'd drink. They'd drink. Uh, they'd drink as much as they could uh, or as much as they wanted to. Uh, dull the senses a bit. Uh, sex. Sex. Um, would they do that? Well, they would when they could. Um, not with each other. Not with, hopefully. Well, not each to their own, Gary. Let's be a little more tolerant about this. Um, but um, I, I think the main thing is, uh, and this is a crudity, I'm going to say it anyway, but uh, prostitution is a soldier's idea of women's war, war work. Uh, it, and it's there, and it's a, a, a terrible perspective, but that's what they saw women as. Uh, um, either professional or unprofessional uh, the, the, as a sexual release. Uh, it, it is very unfortunate, but it, it is how it is. And then there was another sinful pleasure, uh, cards or, or, I suppose, football. Um, uh, but they spent their time as they could. Now, uh, there's, a, there's not much to cheer them up about all this, is there? Um, well, a, except, except you're hoping that the, the Germans are bloody getting exactly the same or suffering more than you are. What, you think that would cheer you up? <laughs> Those 
bastard craps are getting it worse than we are. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Have you got any evidence that the Germans were suffering, Gary, or are you just saying this in a random and cheerful no, manner? there was misery on both sides, and this is pioneer Friedrich Niklaus of the 53rd Reserve Pioneer Company. Things have got very much worse. Flanders is just one great morass, and all military operations have been brought to a standstill by the mud. Day and night we stand up to our knees in mud and water. We have to wrap our legs up to our thighs in sandbags just to survive. The rain pours incessantly from above, while beneath us the water table has risen to just below ground level. The lookout positions have been raised up on stilts and the water is bailed out of the trenches using pots and pans and any container to hand. If only there were such things as pumps in the trenches. In the communication trenches we have built raised walkways because it is simply impossible to drain them. On top of all this, the mad gun battle goes on across this forsaken plain, stretching out in front of us as flat as a tabletop, where it is dangerous even to raise your head above ground during the day. Hell on earth for both sides then, eh? Now, yeah. now interestingly, we have not at any point mentioned rats. But, but surely we, rats, like poetry, is absolutely endemic in the trenches. They're everywhere, aren't they? Or are they? Well, it, they, they were in some trenches. I mean, not in every trench. And, uh, you know, if you, for example, if you had a trench on the, at the edge of a canal, you'd get the water, you'd probably get rats. And they thrived, and you've seen the pictures of them eating the corpses and, and gnawing on, on faces and things like that. But actually, they were just as much of a problem for the living because they would run across the sleeping. Uh, if people hung rations up... They, the rats were practically acrobatic in their attempts to reach the rations. Um, and, and so, you know, we've gone through this whole thing without even mentioning them. And we haven't much mentioned poetry either. No, we'll have to put that right. We should have a whole podcast on it. We should. Now, although you mentioned that uh, these are, are very early trenches and they're very primitive, um, for those of you that, that visit the Western Front or want to visit the Western Front, there are a number of trench systems that you could uh, that you could visit, uh, uh, particularly uh, in the Eaps area where you've got, uh, for example, Yorkshire Trench or Sanctuary Wood. Uh, but you've also got a German trench system at uh, Bayernwald Trench, which is near Weishaupt. And, of course, you've got the Trench of Death. <gasps> which is the, the Belgian trench system up near Dixmunder. And I, I would really recommend a visit to all of those. I've been to all of them, and I think that uh, it's well worth that uh, the time if you're in the area. It is, and just to get an idea of, of what it was like. Uh, of course, we could just, uh, while you're in there, throw a bucket of water, on, freezing cold water on you, and then shoot every third one of you just to really... Every tenth one, sorry, I must not exaggerate. I must, I must, millions of times I've told myself to, must not exaggerate. Now, um, well, you could, you could walk along a trench and I could hit you in the head for, for realism as your head would be protruding above it. Just bobbing up, yes, every so often. Yeah. You just aim a bit ahead and clunk. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, well, I've enjoyed doing this podcast. I would urge all of you if to, to, uh, to listen and share with us. You can find us on social media. We're on uh, Facebook, Peter Hart's Military History, and we're on uh, Twitter as well. Please do share and retweet uh, our episodes. That really, really helps. And if you want to really go the extra mile, then if you, if you write a review for us, I believe, according to Matt McLaughlin, our sponsor and benefactor, that uh, the best place to do that is on the Apple site. But so any way you choose to write a review. If the review says we're lovely, if the review says there are a mean and Twitter twisted pair of bitter wankers, our favourite ever review, <laughs> then possibly keep it to yourself. You may well you may well find your review ending up on our business cards. Yes. That is on our business card now. All right, well, nice to see you again, even though it's at the distance. You. Bye. See ya. Cheers, mate. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?